It's a joy to unite our hearts in singing together. Now I hope it will be a joy of a similar nature to open the word together and to consider pursuing humility with our lives. If you would, open your Bibles now to Mark chapter 10 for our text. Mark chapter 10, verse 41. You know what, I'm going to back up to verse 35. Because at 41, you're jumping into the middle of a story. In verse 35, though, we find James and John, the two sons of Zebedee, came to Jesus saying, Teacher, we want you to do for us whatever we ask of you. That's a rather interesting way to start a discussion. And if you know the, the situation uh, from the other Gospels, you know that they didn't actually come alone. They brought their mommy. Uh, Salome, who is probably most likely the sister of Jesus' mother. So they bring Jesus' auntie on over to seek a family favor. James and John get their mother apparently, or their mother somewhat on her own, who seems to be traveling along with the whole entourage. Maybe she's a typical mom and just loves the, the fooey out of her boys and thinks that they can do no wrong. And uh, she, she and they coalesce and come up with a plan. But anyway, let me go back to the verse. James and John, the two sons of Zebedee, come up to Jesus saying, Teacher, we want you to do for us whatever we ask of you. Jesus said to them, what do you want me to do for you? I wonder what the tone of Jesus' response was there. Because if one of my kids were to come up to me and say, Dad, I want you to do for me whatever I ask of you, my response would be, what? <laughs> so I wonder if he had a bit of that tone in responding to uh, these men here and Salome their mother. And they said to him, Grant that we may sit one on your right and one on your left in your glory. Wow. Uh, they had heard that there are 12 thrones. They've heard of, of that uh, part of Scripture. They realize there's got to be 12 thrones. There's 12 of them. Somebody's got to sit close to him. Why not us? Hmm. Jesus says to him, verse 38, You do not know what you are asking. Are you able to drink the cup that I drink? Or to be baptized with the baptism which, with which I am baptized? And they said, We are able. They clearly are naive and they don't know what they are espousing. They don't realize what they're declaring. And I feel like that, honestly, with some of the songs that, that we sing, that I sing. Maybe I shouldn't point the finger so much at you, but there's a lot of bold things that we say in our songs. You know, uh, every breath, I will follow you, and things like that. It's, um, you know, I remember even as a kid hearing the songs, uh, you know, around the campfire kind of songs, I have decided to follow Jesus, no turning back. 
though none follow, I will go, all of those kinds of statements, these really bold statements. And, and I, even as a kid, I would, you know, and I wasn't really following Jesus, I would remember the words of Peter who made bold declarations as to his steadfastness of faith, how if everyone else leaves, I'm still your guy, I'm with you. That unawareness of self is so deadly. That inability to see ourselves with proper eyes and here we have two brothers who hopefully we don't um, just cast stones at, but we can see a bit of ourselves in this. Let me go back to the text. They said, after saying, we are able, Jesus said to them, I, I can imagine his eyebrows raised in response to that. They said, we are able. And he's like, really? He said to them, the cup that I drink, you shall drink. Now imagine, you just go forward here a few years, not even, and James and John are now viewing the Savior on a cross. You got to wonder if this came back to their mind when they said, we can drink the cup. And you shall be baptized with the baptism with which I am baptized, but to sit on my right or on my left, this is not mine to give, but it is for those for whom it has been prepared. Hearing this, the ten began to feel indignant with James and John. And do they feel indignant with them because of a righteous position within themselves, a, self, a, a, a proper indignation, a righteous kind of anger, you might say, towards their their question here, towards their request? I would say no, not at all. Because tragically, these men are the ones who will discuss repeatedly, and even on the night of the, Lord, of the, the Last Supper, they are arguing about which one of them is the greatest. All the lessons that they've learned, one of the big ones that we're about to look at and the lesson doesn't sink in. Not even on the night of his trial had they gotten the lesson of what Jesus was trying to teach them here. That is such a wake-up call for me and you who travel through this life with varying degrees of facade. I actually resonate with the words of Franz Kafka when he said this. He said, I was ashamed of myself when I realized life was a costume party and I attended with my real face. Uh, some artists and philosophers and whatnot have been able to perceive and put to, to paper things that others of us have just kind of ignored. There's varying degrees of facade that most of us walk around with. Grace Kelly had it right when she spoke of uh, Hollywood. You remember Grace Kelly, the... Oh, I don't know, she was quite the deal in American cinema history, and then she went and married a guy, in Mon the Prince of Monaco, became a real-life princess. She, when she left Hollywood, they asked her different questions. She considered a comeback, but one of the most famous quotes, at least to me, that she made was this. Hollywood amuses me. Holier than thou for the public and unholier than the devil in reality. Um, if you've never paid attention to the 
Epstein stuff, uh, then well, I don't really encourage you to pay attention to it a whole lot, but you start to get an idea of the filthy underbelly of the, the rich and famous. Very unlike the TV show, The Lifestyles of the Rich and Famous, if you get a view of what's really going on, you start to be disgusted and start to wonder why you wanted what they have in the first place. Uh, this world, we, I shouldn't say this world, we, many times are filled with a righteous, self-righteous indignation towards someone like this who would promote themselves in a society that is constantly being taught to promote themselves. What they've done here, James and John, by making this request is not as shocking as it, as it should be. They were just the first ones to make the request. They were bold enough to say it out loud. And I would say that the others have the same desire in their heart because of the discussions that they have that go on all the way up until the crucifixion of Christ when all of that nonsense comes crashing down and they start to see themselves for what they are. Going back to the text in verse 41, hearing this, the ten began to feel indignant with James and John and calling them to himself, Jesus said to them, so he needs to call in a, a group meeting. There is a problem brewing among these men and there needs to be a discussion, a frank discussion about what's going on. And Jesus says to them, you know that those who are recognized as rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them. And their great men exercise authority over them. Now all of this is just axiomatic. This is self-evident. This is the world in which we live. Always has been, always will be. This is how the world runs. If you have power, you make sure people know it. America was somewhat founded on this kind of idea that everyone is created equal and everyone's on equal footing and all of that. And we've seen all of that just disappear through the years. Uh, we, we have a growing disparity between the aristocracy, the ruling class, if you will, the celebrities, and then us peasants and plebs. Uh, you see that widening divide. Jesus is just saying what is, you just look around and you can see this. How is it that a, a Gentile, a, a godless person, how do they exercise power? Tragically, you could say that throughout church history, much of the church has, done, has ruled exactly in this same way. If you dare, you can look through the, the annuals of church history of the Roman Catholic Church and the ways different popes have ruled thinking that they are the vicar, the, the embodiment of Christ on the earth to reign from the chair and to determine all things. They, the, I think the funnier their hats get, the more hypocritical they are, the, the more ornate the outfit, probably the more of a fraud they truly are. And Jesus noticing, just telling the disciples, look, I understand this is how the world works. This is how things go. As he says, those who are recognized as rulers, they lord it over them. And their great men exercise authority over them. I asked Jim to read that passage in 1 Peter because you see that what Peter did was he internalized this message and he grew. He changed. And you start to see fleshed out this inverted worldview that Jesus gives him here. He says in verse 43, but it is not this way among you. That had to drop kind of like a stone. What do you mean? 
We're not supposed to operate like everyone else in the world? Yes. It's not this way among you. But whoever wishes to become great among you shall be your servant. What? He's saying this, as he knows, to a group of men who are used to being the servants. This is Israel in the first century under the boot of the great Roman Empire. Maybe the mightiest, most dominant empire in world history. Israel is nothing. They can be compelled to carry a Roman soldier's items, whatever he wants, for over a mile. Just, you just walk by. You don't feel like carrying your load as a Roman soldier. You just grab some random Jewish guy and say, all right, man, carry that for me. You can do nothing about it. I mean, you can. You'll die. Now, you'll be beaten in the street. You can. And they, they're so used to being pushed down and oppressed that you have a whole group of people, the zealots, who have risen up and, and captured the, the mind of many of the Jews of the time, the political entity of the time. They, they gathered enough of, of their buddies together and enough like-minded people that the zealots will one day in the 60s, uh, you know, a few years from this, 30 years from this, they're going to be the ones that lead a revolt against the Romans. And they do okay until the Romans actually come to their doorstep and then Jerusalem is decimated. The popular sentiment among most Jewish people was a hatred of their position in society. They were thoroughly bored with the Romans and with their presence. The fact that Pilate sets up a palace of a sort, a praetorian, right there next to the temple had to just drive them insane. The most beautiful thing in their universe, as far as they were concerned, is the, is the temple that was being built by the, t you know, the, the temple that Herod put together, actually, uh, you know, that building project didn't stop until about 68 AD. You know what happened in 68? The Romans showed up. That temple was being built for 80 years. It was as beautiful as you could imagine. It was, it was breathtaking. And you would have Pilate and Roman garrison right next to it. They had to just drive them nuts, the presence of the Romans. And here Jesus is going to tell them, if you want to be great, what do you have to do? You've got to be a servant. What? This is Messiah. This is the, the new Moses that is to come. And, and bring us out of this oppression. Set us up on high so that all the millennial promises come to pass. So that all the world will be streaming to Israel. We're going to be the top, man. We're not the foot. We're going to be the, the big deal. We're no longer going to be the servants, man. People are going to be serving us. What are you talking about? If I want to be great, I've got to be a servant. That's just... That just doesn't make sense. It's not this way among you, but whoever wishes to become great among you shall be your servant, 44. And whoever wishes to be first among you shall be slave of all. Servant is one thing. Servant is a guy who's given a job. Slave is owned. 
That's lower. And Jesus takes that principle of being the servant, and he then even adds to it the idea of being a slave. I cannot imagine how their heads must have been spinning. I can't imagine the, the question and answer session thereafter if they brought it up. But man, if I'm walking away from this, I'd be like, well, what does that mean? What are we talking about? Because this is such an inversion of everything that, that we come to expect. If there was ever a society that could understand narcissists, it's us. Uh, you're probably familiar, I'm telling you what you already know, but narcissism, that psychological condition as it's called today of excessive self-love was derived from the story of Narcissus, the Greek demigod who, who was so beautiful that when he happened upon a pool of water, he saw his own reflection and was like, who is that handsome devil? And he came back over to it and he stared into it so long. He so fell in love with himself and, and couldn't, he couldn't stand the idea of, of looking away from his own self that he died in his self-love. Uh, that excessive self-love I don't think has ever been expressed more clearly than in culture today. I mean, the, just look around. Just massive amounts of self-love. We're always promoting ourselves. And if we're not promoting ourselves, we're reading magazines about how to better ourselves. We're, we're reading self-help books all the time. And you don't see the best sellers being how to help your neighbor, how to help your spouse, how to assist others in need. Those aren't the best sellers. Everybody will give a nod to that, but this is what I was talking about earlier. I was talking about varying levels of fraud. We have a culture that's telling us a such duality of messages. They're constantly promoting this excessive self-love and then at the same time telling you that, uh, they, that you need to love your neighbor. Remember the, that rhetoric when uh, the, the world picked up the, the, the words of Scripture to try to demand that we wear masks? If you love your neighbor, you'll wear a mask. Well, my exact response to that, that was when I really started turning on the entire COVID discussion. Who are you to take God's law into your mouth? You who hate God. That's Psalm 50. Who are you to take God's word and then try to say, oh yeah, let me use this as a bludgeon passage. I don't care about anything God has to say, but let me use this one little verse to try to, to demand you do all the things that I want. I mean, that's the, that is such a contradictory message. Everyone needs to love me and affirm my decision, but you need to do what I want. What? We're a mess. We're a total mess. And the, the excessive self-love, narcissism, is an incredible thing to me because I've yet to read any psychological uh, dissertation or whatnot on the subject of where is that mile marker when you've, because everything is, every problem is supposed to be solved by loving yourself more. All your problems are because you don't love, you don't have a high enough self-esteem. The reason why you, you can't love anybody else unless you love yourself. That's like, that's like the, the first and greatest commandment in culture. You got to love yourself. You got to have a proper self-esteem. Uh, man, that's, that's remarkable. 
that we don't see it as a problem. That's remarkable that we don't see that and go, that, that's clearly screaming out, this, this is the God of the age. Excessive self-love. No, okay, so here's my, my question. At what point do you pass from proper self-esteem to gone too far? At what point do you go from loving yourself enough to narcissism? See, narcissism became a hot-button issue when Trump came into office because a lot on the left were saying, well, he's a narcissist and all that. And actually, a book that's written back in the 70s boomed again because everybody wanted to learn about narcissism again because they, they were aiming all those guns at Trump. Of course, Trump's a narcissist. I don't think that's even hard to, to point out. At the same time, what do you think you are? So here's the, the thing, in a culture loaded with a love of self and promoting self and, and pushing yourself to the front of the line, I mean, how do you get ahead at work? How do you bump your way up the ladder? You promote yourself, you push yourself forward. Gone are the days of trying to humbly do your job. Gone are the days of, of trying to humbly do what you ought if you actually want to climb. And then Jesus says this crazy thing, and then we're supposed to live with this. If you want to be great, be a servant. And if you want to be first, you have to be last. You have to be slave. It's remarkable to me, remarkable to me how much God works in paradox. If you want to live, you've got to die. If you want to find, you've got to get lost. If you want to be great, you've got to be last. God works in this inverted, upside-down pyramid that is just so uncomfortable for us. And I think in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus actually explains a bit more for us what this would look like. This would look like, for example, if you're going to give to someone who's poor, don't tell anyone about it. How upside-down is that? I mean, our culture makes sure you better take a picture of that. Right? You better have some video evidence of that. Uh, if you're going to give, then you better sound a trumpet. But Jesus actually says, look, don't let anybody know about it. Don't even let your right hand know what your left hand is doing. He says that when you're going to pray, don't let anybody know that you're into praying. Don't, don't like get on the street corner and bellow it out, as was the habit of some in his time. Especially the spiritual leaders of the time. How weird is that to stomach? When the spiritual leaders that everybody says, that's the guy who is determined to follow God. Look at his lifestyle as a Pharisee. Look at all the things he denies himself and the ways in which he lives and all of that. And then the holy people, what do they do? They stand on the street corner and they bellow out prayers. And you're like, oh, I, that's what I should be doing. Man, how hard would that be for, for these 12 to sit there and listen to that? Is it any wonder that Judas turns on him? Is it any wonder that Judas goes, yeah, this is, I can't stomach this. You know, this, is, this is a bridge too far. Man, alive. You ask too much. It's not going to be this way in God's hierarchy. So here's the thing. Promoting yourself works. We can agree to that, can't we? The people that have advanced in culture have promoted themselves. It works, pragmatically speaking, and at our core, without Christ, everyone's basic religion is pragmatism. If it works, I do it. 
So here's the problem. In a world where that works, Jesus is saying, I don't care. Because that doesn't work in God's economy. It works here in this economy, but it doesn't work in God's economy. I say this kind of thing all the time in my own home. When my children whine and complain to me, I, I say to them, look, in the world, the squeaky wheel gets the grease. And all of you can attest to that in your workplace. The guy who whines, complains, bickers, and argues usually gets his way, and if he doesn't, he gets a posse around with him, and you get everybody mad, and you get what you want. It works. But in my home, child of mine, if you're going to whine, bicker, and complain, you're going to get your butt handed to you. You're not going to get what you want, and in fact, I'm going to do the opposite of what you want, because that's how God works. I'm not going to give in to your whining and complaining. Why would I not do that? Because I'm proud, maybe. Maybe my will's stronger than yours. That could be the problem, but I don't really, I, hopefully that's not it. It's because I'm trying to teach them this is not what pleases God. And that's how we live, with an inverted view of these things. Now, a child should be taught how to properly register a complaint with star command, right? A child should be taught, look, I don't like what's happening. How can I present that to you? That, I'll give you that, of course. But whining, complaining, nagging, oh man, that never should fly in a Christian home. Why? Because you're reinforcing what the world says and how it operates. This is not the way things work in God's economy. So it really comes down to whose praise do you want? Whose glory do you really want? You want your own? Cool, promote yourself. Get yourself out there. You know, get a huge following on YouTube or whatever platform you love and get all the people behind you and, and get everyone with you. Cool. And then you've gained what? The world. And what does it profit you to gain the whole world and yet lose your soul? What does it profit you to, to pile up a stack, a mountain of gold and accolades like Scrooge McDuck so you can swim in it if you've got none with the Lord? The goal is to build up an eternal weight of glory far beyond all comparison because we look at not the things which are seen like promotions and, and accolades. We look at the unseen. Amen? We look at the things of God, the realities behind the veil of this world. Jesus inverts their worldview. And then he doesn't just preach at them. He then drives it home in the most remarkable of ways. Verse 45, for even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to what? To serve. What? king does that what king serves what's his name over in England now finally got the throne after 900 years uh, is it, it's Charles right I've got him and his sons and all that stuff confused um, King Charles I don't know much about the guy I know he's a globalist type of dude and that kind of stuff I know a little bit but you know what I don't see him doing shining shoes you know what you don't see him doing is helping out the help from anything I've heard. Granted, like I said, I don't know a ton, but do you see him down on his knees assisting people? Kings don't do this. This is not our world. And if Jesus is 
not a king, then what is he? Jesus is king of the universe. Beyond comprehension. You consider the glories of heaven. I don't know how often this resonates in your brain, but Isaiah chapter 6, Ezekiel chapter 1, Moses wanting to see the glory of God, and all these other texts where you get just a glimmer of heaven, and, and John, the apostle, one day stands at, at the opening of the book of Revelation, and he stands in the throne room of God, and he falls like a dead man, like over, everyone falls because the glory of God is so overwhelming, and that's what Jesus stepped down out of, to come here. To live among us in our dirt and puke. Every one of my family members except one is at home right now barfing. So it's, it's really connecting in my brain right now. The, the, the stark realities of human life. And that's what Jesus came down into. He left that. Where everything screams glory. To this. What are we talking about? What king would stoop to that? And then he doesn't just come, right? He doesn't just come to earth and ascend like a superhero and everyone, oh, you know. He, instead, he comes in a manger to a peasant family. They can't even afford the proper ritual to bring in a, a firstborn son of, of a Jew. They have to, to scrape together their pennies and get some doves. He lives a life where he doesn't even know where he's going to sleep at night. What are we talking about? This is nothing like humanity. And that's why we fix our eyes on Jesus. You don't compare yourself to anyone else, to me, mercy. You don't compare yourself to your spouse. You don't compare yourself to anyone else, any other example that might be before you. I have the advantage, of course, of knowing my dad behind the veil. Uh, some people, I've been with him a few times, and people, oh, Reverend Dr. <laughs> Gary. And I'm like, what? Who's that guy? Reverend Doctor. I mean, he's got that title. I mean, technically speaking. But I know him in a, a very different manner. It's awkward for me, as you know, to be the pastor's son and to be preaching even. Right? I mean, what do I call him? Dad? It's weird if I'm doing announcements. Like, yeah, so my dad will talk to you later. But if I say Pastor Gary, then I have other people like, oh, that was disrespectful to your father. <laughs> what do you want me to do? There's people here that don't know we're related. It happens. There's people that don't know the situation. But if you get behind the veil, you know anybody enough, you start to get the real picture. A.W. Tozer's writings just are fantastic to me. But there's also a biography about his life that talks about how he didn't really care, seemingly, all that much about his wife. That's heartbreaking. Right? His sons, his children said they didn't really feel like they knew him. To me, that's so sad. Because I put the man on a pedestal that he didn't belong on. And the problem with putting things on pedestals is when they fall, they shatter. See, we don't fix our eyes on Tozer or Gary, Dad. Because that's nonsense. 
That's never where our attention was supposed to go. The absurdity of fixing your eyes on some random human as compared to the glorious Son of God who came down out of his glory to dwell among us in such a way as he did, it, it just should blow your mind that you would even put anyone else in a category with him. He says, verse 45 again, For even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. Jesus is not a general who leads from the back. He's not a leader who leads from behind. He's on the field. He's on the front line. He's not in the background in any sense. He is right there in the dirt and the muck. He is a sympathetic high priest who never asks us to do what he himself is unwilling to do. Isn't it weird when somebody asks you to do a job that they themselves won't, you know, pick up a hammer to do themselves? It's an odd thing when you try to ask your children, hey, go rake the yard, and you're sitting there watching TV. It's a weird thing to try to demand them do something that you yourself won't do. Uh, anyone who's in leadership, which is basically everybody on some level, needs to think that through. Don't ask people to do things that you yourself won't. Jesus gives an example that defies description that the apostles don't get the depth of. As I said, they're going to argue about their greatness going forward. All the way through the ministry of Christ, they're going to argue about this. Um, that seems improbable to not get the lesson when it's just so pointed, when it's just right in your face like this. But it happens all the time. We miss the point. So what I would like to do in these last few minutes is to then consider when Jesus says, if you want to be great, you've got to be a servant. If you want to be first, you've got to be slave. What does that you know, kind of look like when the rubber meets the road? When it gets down to your life and mine, what does that mean? What does that mean? Um, let me ask, let me say one thing first that for me is clarifying. What if you don't care to be first? You know, what if you don't care to be great? You're cool being lower middle class. You know, you're, you, you feel content in the spot that you're in. What if you don't really care to be first or to be great? Because I think many of us would fit in that category. I'm not trying to conquer the world. You know, I'm not, I'm not trying to be the next LeBron James or Elon Musk or something like that. So what if I don't really want to be great? Well, then let me ask. This is the kind of questions I turn on myself. Uh, this might hurt as I go through this. That's why I'm saying that. What ambition do you have in life then, my friend? You don't want to be great. Okay. Let's just run with that. What ambition do you have? Your, is your ambition then you just want to be comfortable enough in life? To not be rattled too much? To not have to sacrifice too much for any one thing, but to kind of stay in that lane where nothing's really too bad and nothing's really, you know, I'm not trying to, I'm not trying to you know, conquer here. Just trying to maintain you know, I think a lot of us, most people, want to just live and enjoy life, mostly. 
and then go to heaven at the end. They want to live a, a nice existence where they're not bothered too much by the government or by their neighbor, honestly. They just want to kind of put it on cruise control to a certain degree. They want to live a mostly comfortable life. Not to say they're unwilling to give to church and give to people and be generous here and there. They, got, they pick their spots. But most of us want to live a pretty good life. Um, it could be that we've just not thought long enough about our ambitions to realize how much we would like to be great in those things. Maybe you'd like to be great at not really being bothered with the problems of others. Maybe that's the greatness you pursue. Maybe the greatness you pursue is a certain level of comfort that you don't want rattled. And I don't mean that you have the same standard of comfort that I do, because everybody's got a different spot with that. Everybody's got different things that, that matter greatly to them. Some people, food is like, I gotta eat great food. Other people, they gotta travel. And other people gotta do, you know, everybody's got their spots. Everybody's got their hobbies and things that, that really matter to them. So your level of comfort is, is your own issue and you don't really want that rattled. It could be that you want to be great in those things. You just don't really write it down and think it through. Maybe you want to be great, just not in anything that matters. Ever thought about that? You ever thought about the, the weariness or the, the, the uselessness of being really good at something that makes no difference? I think of that when I remember my childhood and remember all the statistics I had in my brain about baseball. I knew tons of stats, still probably lodged in there somewhere. I knew tons of things about football players and, and uh, basketball players. Man, I knew a ton of stuff. To what end? an expert. I was on vacation recently and I happened upon the uh, ESPN and I was listening to Shannon Sharp and Skip Bayless, isn't that his name? Arguing about who cares for an hour? Arguing on and on about mindless, you know, things that make no difference in, in next week? let alone when you're dying? See, sometimes we want to be great in lots of different inconsequential things. So I would say that for the most part, um, and this is, like I said, this is me looking in the mirror a lot. Um, when I say I don't want to be great, I don't want to be first, it's a false humility. It's... Uh, a person, that comes from a person who hasn't thought it through, a person who doesn't really know themselves all that well and who thinks they don't really desire greatness. Some young people desire to be great at video games, and you think that's stupid. Uh, but some of you want to be great at golf, and if you don't think that's stupid, you're not thinking it through. Some of you want to be great at hunting. Mike Wickens would be laughing at me right now. You could hear his laugh, I'm sure, in your head. Some of us want to be great at all kinds of random things, but we're failing to see that we've just propped up our ladder on the wrong mountain. We've decided to, to climb the wrong apex. We have a false humility, honestly, 
that fails to see what we should be spending our time and energy and effort and money on. Um, I think of the last part there. I said it's either a false humility or it's someone who truly doesn't know themselves. And I remember the line from the beginning of uh, John Calvin's Institutes. He says this as he opens the book, nearly all the wisdom we possess, that is to say true and sound wisdom, consists in two parts, the knowledge of God and the knowledge of ourselves. Only in knowing God will we know ourselves, though. Many fall into the abyss of trying to understand themselves, and you will never untangle that particular web. As Charles Spurgeon had a wonderful line where he said, The problem with digging into my own heart, without, with searching into my own heart, is that I find within it chambers within chambers. The more I try to sift out and and suss out the, what's really going on in my heart, the less I really know. Only in knowing God will we know ourselves. Only in knowing who we really are will we be able to know God. I can't tell you how many lessons that I've learned, how much I've changed even in some perceptual issues in relationship to my God, me and God, as it, from being a father. I mean, just dawned on me once upon a time, just not too long ago, how eager am I to forgive my children? How ready am I to forgive them? We're at odds with one another, and I'm annoyed with them for a minute or something, or they're annoyed with me, and I see this crossways look at me, this kind of like, you know, hostility. And you sit there, and you're eager as a parent to restore the relationship. And I don't know that I ever looked at God quite like that until that dawned on me. Look how quickly, look how much I want restoration. I long for that. God has that with you as his child. When you get errant in your belief, in, in your practice, in your habits, in your behavior, God's not just shaking his head, you idiot. You're like, just go away, you're, you're done. Like a father to his child who he wants to reset and restore and help walk in newness of life. That comes a bit from knowing yourself. Then you start to understand God a bit more. So in pursuing humility then, let me add a little bit more meat to the bones. Um, what does it actually look like? Because the way I think of it, um, if I'm always a servant and a slave, when do I ever quit holding the door? When do I ever quit scrubbing the floor or cleaning the toilet? Because if I'm a servant of all, wouldn't somebody always be like, all right, here, do this job for me. Hey, why don't you do this job for me? And you're always kind of down at the bottom, like just like kind of cleaning the floor. Like, is that, is that all I'm supposed to do? What does this start to look like? Well, first of all, here's some parameters. Christians are the slaves of Christ first and foremost. So we don't march to the beat of just random people around us and whatever they want. We pick up the priorities of Christ. What does Jesus desire? What is his will, secondly? Uh, his will would be that the needs of his church are met. And the third thing to consider when considering how is it that I should be a servant to all is, you know, sometimes the church throughout history and locally, even here, the church may have the wrong idea about what it needs. I thought it was interesting that during the pandemic that we determined various things were essential, but church was not. It was essential that people go and have access to strip clubs. Were you aware of that? 
That was determined essential. But going to church was not. It was not determined to be essential that you be able to go see your grandmother in the nursing home. Really? Um, we can have a very wrong view as what is really actually truly essential in life, what matters, what is valuable. So we have to go back to the scriptures and find what do we need. More than anything, the people of God need the word of God. We need the sustenance that's derived from the word. If we're detached from the word and detached from things like when you're detached from the word, you don't realize the need for fellowship. Online church is cool. I mean, it's a nice band-aid, but it doesn't fix the problem. Online churches is, uh, you know, being able to, to watch so that morning programs and stuff like that that we do here at church, these things. I'm so thankful for Edwin being able to have the talent to do that. And you should all give him a pat on the back at some point. It's changed Edwin's whole job here. You should give him that. Kind of, like, hey, man, thanks for doing it. If you watch, if you don't, then fine. Be that way. I don't care. You know, uh, but we have that option. But that's not church. That's not the same thing as singing praises to God and coming around the, uh, the word that's being opened. And you know that. There's just a total difference there. So sometimes the church determines the wrong thing. We've got to get our drumbeat from the word of God. And if I'm trying to look, and if I'm trying to act like a servant and a slave, I have to consider this example. Jesus washed the disciples' feet, but he didn't serve the Passover meal. Jesus washed their feet, but didn't clean up after it was over. Jesus uh, didn't stop his teaching to help Martha serve the meal. The apostles themselves determined very quickly that their priority was to serve the church by teaching and to appoint some deacons to serve the tables physically. But, as a corrective to that, so you don't just think that the job of, that we all have is just to teach, Jesus still did wash feet physically. The way I think of this is, that helps me a lot is this. Jesus um, never thought of himself as above any job. He never imagined that certain things were beneath him. We've got people for that, that attitude. If a pastor, for example, is unwilling to pull some weeds or unwilling to, to wash a floor or to unclog a toilet or something like that, you think, well, I, you know, I, that's not my job. That attitude, I think that's in opposition to what Jesus presents us with here. The, the idea of a servant leader would be one who never really thinks of themselves as above any job. I think it's a menial task in Christ. We understand that in all works and all aspects and all occupations, there's a dignity to doing that job because it's done for the Lord. That is a, uh, not the easiest thing to start to sift into every little behavior. And there's lots of things to discuss on that level that you might do with your family this afternoon. What does it look like for dad to be the servant in the home? What does it look like for mom to do that? What does it look like for the child to do that? If everybody's serving one another, what does that start to, to look like more and more? And how is it that I would find the energy to do that? Let's be real. How, how am I going to find the energy to do that? I don't know. It comes from God. We focus our eyes on Christ. We pray to him to give us that which we need, our daily bread for today. Not next week. Not next month. But today. And so the way this is fleshing out in my particular brain at the moment 
It's like I said, I got some puking people at home who are miserable. So I hope that I'm able to adapt enough of a servant mentality that when I'm done here, I'm going home to help them. Because I feel like that's the priority at the moment to assist them in getting better. That's not a job that's beneath me. I'm going to go over to Priscilla while she's laying on the floor like, are you going to get up and clean this? And one of the kids over there, I mean, you got to see that mess. You, you, you good? That's not the attitude. That's not the disposition of a servant. Any, no job is beneath me. Christians are a slave of Christ first. And we serve people thereafter. Uh, I find this particular sermon, discussion, whatever you want to call it, to be incredibly pointed at me. I find a, a great need for humility in my life and knowing what it looks like to pursue it is not always easy. It's not always right in front of me because I'm working with a worldview that's upside down from what scripture presents. So my connectedness to the word is essential. It is vital. And without it, I will always, by default, be making the wrong decision. I'll prioritize, I'll think through this life in the wrong way without the word of God. Praise God's name for this word. Pray with me. Our Father, we thank you for your word, for its determination on the values of life and the things that we need. Lord, may we derive all our hope from you. May we derive all our trust in you. May we not find that the things of this world are enough to satisfy. May we find them to be bankrupt and to find that you alone are enough to sustain us. Thank you for the words of Christ. May they change us. May we not just be hearers, but doers of your word. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.